Well, I'm certain that you've all have uh, heard of AA, or Alcoholics Anonymous. AA is a support group designed to help people overcome alcoholism through a 12-step process and accountability. It also features identifying a higher power to help you through, although that higher power could be anything. What you may not know, though, is that Alcoholics Anonymous had Christian roots and a biblical foundation. The founders of AA, Bill Wilson and Dr. Robert Smith, they originally met together in this group called the Oxford Group in the 1930s. That was a Christian fellowship aimed at helping people live out Christianity. Wilson was an alcoholic who lost his career on Wall Street because of his drinking, but he found lasting change through this thing called the Oxford Group. The Oxford Group had some key tenets. They said, stated that all people are sinners, all sinners can be changed, but confession is a prerequisite for change. They believed ultimately only God can change people, but they also understood how God uses others to initiate that change. So they advocated for frequent small group meetings where they would confess their sins to one another, pray for one another, help one another surrender to God, hold one another accountable. Sounds pretty similar to an AA meeting today, except without the mention of God or sin. And indeed, the Oxford group proved too overtly Christian for the founders of AA. They believed alcoholism was more of a medical problem than a sin problem, and they, didn't, they weren't that concerned with evangelizing people. So they later broke away from the Oxford group and forming Alcoholics Anonymous, and they allowed people to appeal to any higher power for that hope or strength. However, I think that original group, that Oxford group, was onto something. In a society hedged in by shame and secrecy, Oxford members engaged in radical honesty about their sins and temptations. They understood that sin thrives in the darkness. When it's kept secret, that's how it grows. But when it's brought out into the light, when it's confessed before God, and and even to a measure before others, its power diminishes. Some people didn't like this. One critic back then of the Oxford group said, quote, All that business about telling one's sins in public, it's spiritual nudism, end quote. But through their practices guided by biblical principles, people were finding lasting change and victory over sin. And the Oxford group is just one example of something that we call accountability. The word accountability is not used in the Bible, but the concept of helping one another live out the Christian life certainly is. Spiritually, God designed us to grow together. Church life is meant to be lived cooperatively, not in isolation. We're called to gather, not to scatter. And that the corporate gathering of the church is essential to the spiritual growth of Christians for many reasons. The preaching of the word, fellowship, the ordinances, prayer. All these contribute to the building up of the body each and every Sunday. But you realize these these once-a-week large group gatherings of the church, they don't give occasion for everything the Lord has for us when it comes to living the Christian life, relating to one another. I mean, teaching, preaching, singing, these all exalt God and edify believers. Yeah, we're going to do them. But what about loving one another, instructing one another, serving one another, admonishing one another, helping one another, bearing one another's burdens? What about spurring one another on to love and good deeds? What about praying for one another? There's, in fact, a long list of what the Lord expects his disciples to do when it comes to 
living life together, the relationship we are to have in the church. And his design for this thing called the church for which he died was never just to create some you know, formal 90-minute meeting a week where people would come, casually attend, observe, leave, check out until next week. That's not why he died for the church. 90 minutes a week, that's, that belongs to God. The rest of the week is for me to do as I please. We know as disciples that it cannot be this way. It should not be this way. For the Lord has designed his church to grow, to thrive together. He wants us to be together for, for many reasons. And spiritual relationships are required if we're going to please the Lord by becoming more like Christ. We have, for example, weekly small groups or community groups. They're meant to be an arena for all these spiritual relationships, an additional place beyond a Sunday morning for these relationships to grow. But even if you're not in a small group, the Lord still expects you to be invested in the life of the church outside of Sunday mornings. Could you say that's true of you? You're invested in the life of the church outside a Sunday morning. And one big way that's meant to be true is through something we're going to call biblical accountability. This is a function of the mutual encouragement, admonishment, and prayer that the Lord has prescribed for every believer. This just needs to have some place in your spiritual life. And so I want to address biblical accountability from God's word this morning that you might have a better understanding of it and appreciation of it. Some Christians have never experienced biblical accountability. Others are scared at the thought, but you need not be. What the Lord has given us to do, it's good. It's for our good. But we need to start with biblical instruction, just from the word to almost demystify this practice, answer some questions. What is it? What is it like? What's it for? What need does it fill? How do you do it? These are some of the questions we need to answer from the word if we are to faithfully implement what the Lord has for us here. So with this in mind this morning, I just want to answer from the scriptures seven questions about biblical accountability to frame this time, to frame this Bible study, so that you might faithfully help others run the race of faith, something you're called to do. So we're just trying to answer seven questions about biblical accountability, that, that you can do that. First, Let's begin with just what is biblical accountability? Start with some basic definitions. What is biblical accountability? Accountability in general, you know, refers to accepting responsibility for your actions, being answerable for your behavior. And to hold someone accountable is to require them to give an account for their actions, for their motives behind those actions. So today we want government officials and leaders to give an account, uh, to answer for their actions, for their decisions, for their motives. The whole notion of accountability is based on the existence of appropriate and inappropriate behavior. Now, the world doesn't live by God's standard, but they still have some standard of this is okay, this is not okay. To the world, it's still not okay for a CEO of a nonprofit to redirect funds to himself. That's still not okay to the world. It's still not okay for a state official to give a certain company a a work bid because he's receiving a kickback from them. It's still not okay. So we would hope for those leaders to be held accountable and made to answer for their actions. Now in the church, we too have a a standard of right behavior, wrong behavior, which is acceptable and unacceptable. It's defined by God himself. It's encoded in the scriptures. 
Now, we should say as Christians, we know we're not saved by right behavior. Right behavior does not justify us before God. We know our capacity for wrong behavior given our sinful condition. And this is the whole reason we follow Jesus. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. It's his behavior that saves us, his finished work that can freely justify us and forgive us. So we know we stand before God justly because of faith alone. But thereafter, we are raised to new life in Christ. And he calls us to live out this newness. He gives us his spirit to empower us to walk in his ways. And so now, after faith, we're called to walk this Christian walk. Walk the walk. To live out our faith. And for that walk, there is a standard of right and wrong behavior. That which honors the Lord, that which doesn't. That which is loving toward others, that which is not. And so then, what is accountability in the church? It's simply holding one another to Christ's standard of right living. Holding one another to Christ's standard of Christian living or godly living. Accountability is where Christians are answerable for their behavior as those who've made a claim to follow him and to walk in his ways. Now, if someone completely turns their back on their profession of faith, they, they walk in unrepentant sin and rebellion, they're going to be held accountable through something called church discipline. I mean, the church doesn't wield the sword, so it's not like we physically punish those who are walking away from the faith, but the Lord himself directs us to remove those people from the assembly, lest they, they, they bring a reproach on the whole church body. That is a necessary form of accountability. You're not walking the walk at all. You've turned your back on the Lord. The Lord says they're to be removed. But that's not really what we're going to be talking about in this sermon. We're mostly talking about the Lord, or rather the Christian, who they may have veered away from following the Lord. They've stumbled into sin, but look, they're repentant. They love the Lord. They want to follow him and walk in his ways. They're just, they're weak. They're weak in the flesh. These sin desires and temptations are strong. They stumble They're prone to wander. And what this person needs is not punitive accountability, but proactive accountability. Unlike church discipline, no judgment is involved here. There's nothing heavy-handed about this. Rather, in love, this is where just a brother or sister comes alongside them to help them run the race, follow Christ, put off sin, put on righteousness. It's this type of proactive loving, supportive accountability that we need in the church. That's what we're talking about. Now, you might wonder, is is this type of accountability even biblical? You often hear people say, like, only God can judge me. I'm only accountable to God. And ultimately, that is true, right? God is our maker. He is our judge. We are ultimately only accountable to him. We're going to give it account. Romans 14, 12 says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And so it is true. We are ultimately accountable to God alone. He's the judge. I'm not your judge. I'm not your priest. You're not accountable to me. We all answer to the Lord. He's, Christ is the only Lord. But you do realize that the Lord himself wants us in this spiritual family to be concerned with the spiritual well-being of one another. He wants us to help others such that they give the Lord a good account. 1 Corinthians 12.25 says we're all one body and that the members should have the same care for one another. 
how you care for yourself, your own spiritual life, you should have that same care for others. Romans 12, 5 says, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Not just an individual anymore. You're now members of one another. And since we're all attached to Christ, the head, by virtue of our union with him, we're united to one another. And so we're meant to be invested in the holy living of all the people in our body. So that means if you see a brother or sister struggling, straying, wandering into sin, it's the loving thing to do to pursue them and and to call them back, to help them turn back. And you should want the same from others. You should invite others into your life in the same way. Remember when Cain said to God rhetorically and negatively, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is yes, we are our brother's keeper. We are meant to be our brother and sister's keeper. Accountability in the world is very adversarial. Democrats want to hold Republicans accountable. Republicans want to hold Democrats accountable because you don't want to let your enemy get away with anything. But that is not the spirit of accountability in the church. It's about inviting spiritual friends into your life just to help you walk the walk. You've professed faith in Christ. You've pledged your allegiance to him. You've, you claim to follow him on the narrow way, but your, your flesh is weak. Your sin desires are strong. You just, sometimes you stumble. And if you walk alone, there's a good chance you're going to really fall. This is where biblical accountability comes in. It's just helping one another on the way. To, to pursue Christ on the way, to stay on the way. Accountability like this is an expression of love and just care for one another that the Lord, we've already seen, programmed into the DNA of the church. Now, let's ask a second question, though, to help us in our understanding. What is the goal of accountability? What is the goal? Why exactly does he want us to do this? It is simple, but we need to state it. The goal is spiritual formation, maturity, Growth in Christ-likeness. In one word, sanctification. The the purpose of this is sanctification. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. While you're turning, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, straight up, this is the will of God, your sanctification. There's no question this is God's will for us now, our sanctification. At salvation, we're made perfect in position, but... Thereafter, it's God's will for us to be progressively made perfect in practice, to walk our walk, to live out our faith, to grow into Christ's image. The term for that is sanctification. We're to walk worthily. I know this is familiar, but it's what Ephesians 4 is all about. To be reminded, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, as Paul gets into application, he says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He described our calling. The first three chapters, we've been called by Christ. We've been called to Christ. Now we are to to walk that out, to live that out. And, Clearly, we're to do so together, preserving the unity of the spirit we have in Christ. Now, speaking of the church's unity, verse 4 says there's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
And there's only one body. Yes, there's many local churches, but there's only one body of Christ. Christ is the head. We're the body. Again, by virtue of our union to him, we're united to one another. That means that what one member does in the body affects the whole. When one member is sick or suffering or straying, it's going to have an impact on the whole body. You realize that? If your leg has an open wound and it's infected, it's now just a serious festering wound. It's not just your leg's problem anymore. It's now your whole body's problem. That infection will spread and make the whole body sick even worse. So not just for the sake of the leg, for the sake of your whole body, you need to treat that weak member. And biblical accountability is meant to help the weak member. But it does go beyond that. It's not just about helping the weak and the sick. It's also to make everyone strong, to make every member strong, built up in the Lord. Spiritual growth, spiritual vitality are at stake here. Continue down verse 11, Ephesians 4. Carrying on, it says, He gave some, Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? Why did he give these leaders to the church? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. To what end? To the building up of the body of Christ. For how long? Verse 13, until we all attain, all of us attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I know that's a loaded passage, but you see why the Lord gave spiritual leaders to the church. It's primarily to equip all the saints for this work. It's a work of ministry. Now he says all the saints. It's not, there's no special class of clergy, laity. It's talking about all believers here. We're all to be equipped, gifted, to serve. This work is for all. And so what is the mission of these equipped believers, the church? He says it's the building up of the body. That word building, remember in Matthew, uh, Jesus said, I will build my church. The same word for building is used here, showing us that the Lord intends to use us as the means by which he builds up his body. In breadth and in depth, we are to work to see the body built up. It's not the job of pastors to build the church. It's the job of pastors and leaders to equip the saints to build the church by this work. The ultimate goal is what? Verse 13, just becoming a mature man. How mature? Well, as mature as Christ, as perfect as Christ. Obviously, this work will be perpetual until the Lord returns, but this is our mandate. This is your mandate as the body. Already, you should be able to see that that this Christian who, who comes to church, attends like it's merely an event, talks to no one, leaves quickly until the next week. That person is malfunctioning. They're not doing the work. They're not in the work. They're malfunctioning. They're a malfunctioning part of the body. The Lord has much more in mind for the body and all these individual parts. Verse 14, carrying on, he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but... What are we to be doing? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth 
of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, I know we're just surveying a lot of passages this morning. There's another loaded passage, but you can see again how these equipped saints, right? These saints, these believers who are equipped by the leaders, they're the ones made responsible for growing up the body into the head. It's all your job, mine, all of us, to see the whole body made more like the head Christ. He says, as each member, each individual member is functioning, doing his or her part, serving with his or her gifts. That's what causes the growth of the whole body. He says, for the building up of itself in love. We are the instruments, the means God uses to build his church. And so we're equipped for this work of service. What, what is the work? What is that the actual work then we're trying to do? We're all to be equipped to do. What do we do that the body is to be built up? It comes in that central command, the whole passage in verse 15. Speaking the truth in love. We are to be continually, ongoingly, speaking the truth in love. And Christ said, sanctification comes by the word of truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, verse 17. It's the truth of God's word that renews our minds by which we are not conformed to this world, but transformed into Christ's image, Romans 12, 2. And as we'll continue to see this, this thing we call biblical accountability, it's not much more than just speaking the truth in love to one another in a pointed way. That's something we all need. Now, parallel to Ephesians is a verse in Colossians. Just listen along for the sake of time. Colossians 1.28. Paul summarizes his ministry. He says, We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You see, it's through the proclamation of Christ And the teaching of Christ with wisdom that every person is to be made mature, perfect, complete in Christ. Now, sometimes this truth speaking, right? Speaking the truth in love. Sometimes it involves admonishment. Word for admonish in Colossians is nutheteo, from which we get the term nuthetic counseling. You've heard of that maybe in relation to biblical counseling. This is not punitive accountability like we're the sin police. Like you're the nun walking down the aisles slapping the wrist of anyone who acts out. That's not the picture of admonishment. This is just a way of speaking pointed truth into someone's life to call out their sin and help them put on Christ, to grow in Christ's image. And you've you've seen here, it's not just the job of pastors to do that or formal biblical counselors. Every believer is to be equipped to speak truth into the life of every other believer. It's something we all need though. For example, all the husbands in the room, how many of you would say that you still need to grow? You still need to excel still more in loving your wife as Christ of the church. I'm going to wager and say all of you, none of us have arrived in that area. So accountability is not, it's not finding husbands who fall short and just heaping shame on them like the Pharisees would do. No, it's just being, being open and honest with our areas of sin or weakness just recruiting allies to help us pursue Christ, put on Christ. If that's your goal, if that's something you want, you yourself want to be built up in Christ's image, why why wouldn't you want this? Why wouldn't you want a spiritual ally who can help you? 
Now, we're laying a foundation. We need to take this further. A third question. Again, just to clarify, why is accountability needed? Just digging a little deeper here. Why is accountability needed? We alluded to this, but just to elaborate. In Scripture, sin is frequently associated with darkness. Right? You know that. It's, it's, it's often likened to the darkness, deeds of darkness, deeds done in secret. Sin is like mold. It just it thrives in the darkness. And it seems to grow the most when no one is paying attention to it. An environment of secrecy is what fosters sin. It's just part of our sin nature. It's a university called Newcastle University. They conducted a study a while ago where they lined the walls of the cafeteria with posters of eyes staring at the students. They found that after that, the students were twice as likely to clean up after themselves. Just the subtle notion that they were being watched affected their behavior. But I don't think we need a study to tell us that. I mean, we know this. Dark deeds are most often done in secret. Why is that? It's just because of the uh, deceptiveness and deceitfulness of your own sinful flesh. The flesh understands that if if you're going to bask in your sin, you've got to turn off your conscience. You've got to harden or kill your conscience. You can't have that thing bugging you all day. You have to ignore God and the conscience he gave you, which convicts you of wrongdoing. Now, you can get to the point where you turn off your own conscience. It's not so easy to turn off the consciences of those around you. If you're going to do your deed in front of others, especially other Christians, they're probably going to say something or, or stop you. You also can't be having that. So you better just not tell them. Better just do it in secret. Better to keep things to yourself. This is how our deceptive flesh works that we all still have. Prophet Jeremiah was right when he said, Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? But the Apostle Paul affirms this notion. Just go to Ephesians 5, since you're already here. Ephesians 5, he's comparing and contrasting the believer to the Gentile, the unbeliever. He says down, for example, in verse 8, no, verse 7, do not be partakers with them. Gentiles, verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Positionally, we're in the light. So now we need to walk in the light. Verse 11, again, regarding the Gentiles, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. This is what characterizes the Gentile. But but Paul has to tell us this because he knows we're still prone to fall into the darkness, to stumble into the darkness, to, to live like we still are an unbeliever. And this is why we need to be admonished. The deeds of darkness flourish behind closed doors. And accordingly, you have to realize how readily you will deceive yourself to keep your own sin behind closed doors. Your flesh will come up with a million excuses why you shouldn't tell others about your problem, your struggle to find help. But if you keep your sin struggles in the darkness, they will only grow. You need to shine the light on them. Shining the light is the the quickest, most effective way to gain power over your own sinful flesh. You can't give any sin safe harbor in your heart. You can't just let it live there like it's, you're safe here. You've got a dark corner. No one knows about it. And you, it's poison. That's poison to your soul. Down in verse 13, Paul goes on. 
He says, but all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. Look, as Christians, we we don't want to revel in the darkness anymore. You should have that new desire. You're in Christ. You've been given a new heart. You should have a desire that says, I don't want to live in the darkness anymore. I don't want to participate in these deeds of darkness. I, I want to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. But we're aware that our sinful flesh, which we still have, is constantly trying to drag us back into the dark. And so we should be all the more ready to recruit allies, give them access to the dark corners of our heart for help. We should expose our secret sins to trusted friends, just shining the light on your own sin like this. Again, it's so vital to overcoming the power of the flesh. Now, of course, we need to ultimately expose our sins and confess them to God. Goes without saying, but let's say it. David learned that lesson. I'll read for you Psalm 32, verses 3 and 5. After his sin with Bathsheba, he says this, Psalm 32, verse 3. He said, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. But verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Look, we praise God that because of Christ's cross, all of our sins have been paid for. We have been forgiven of all of our sins. Now, you might ask then, like, if that's the case, why do we need to go beyond this? Why do we need to thereafter confess our sins to one another? And God's the one who sees what we're doing, and we're, we're only ultimately accountable to him, right? That, that's all very true. But are you not seeing the pattern how God designed his church to be the instruments of his sanctifying work? How he actually compels us to grow into Christ's image. God knows that sin is deceiving. He knows how quickly we are to deceive ourselves, how quickly we are to ignore his watchful gaze. It's just too easy for us to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is especially the case for those who might be more spiritually weak or immature. I mean, just how strong are you? Do you trust yourself? Do you trust your own strength to not be deceived by the flesh? I would not make that bet. God knows we're all going to have moments of weakness. If that moment comes when you're all alone, well, you're probably going to fall unless you're strong. But like Ecclesiastes 4.10 says, Woe to the one who falls, and there is not another to lift him up. But why it also says, Two are better than one, for when one falls, the other will lift him up. That is the need biblical accountability fills. An ally to help you when you're weak. Now, key verse, just to, to know, to read, to study, to cherish. We read this morning in scripture reading, Hebrews 3.13 tells us a central verse for accountability. It says, encourage one another day after day, so long as it's still called today, in other words, every day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We all have the flesh. It will deceive us. It can harden you, but it doesn't have to. You can stop it by the truth, but you're going to need others to encourage you, especially if you're weak. They're going to need to speak truth and love to you uh, or else. That's such an important verse. It prescribes a daily one another practice for all of us 
daily encouragement. The, the word for encouragement is the same word uh, often used to describe the Holy Spirit, the, the helper, the one who comes alongside, parakaleo, that comes alongside of us to help us. We are to be that to others. This encouragement is part of accountability. It, it involves being open and honest with others. It's about those areas of your life. You know, by all your stumbles, you are prone to be deceived. Look at this, this area right here. I'm prone to be deceived here. Help me. It just boils down to how seriously you take sanctification and growth in godliness. And we're not trying to achieve salvation. We've been saved by grace. But because we love our Lord who died for us, we want to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. And accountability is necessary by God's design because we've learned there's a significant corporate cooperative dimension to spiritual growth. It's been said many times, but you're just, you're not going to grow very much alone. Usually that's when people decline when they're all alone spiritually. Now I want to address a few practical questions. Number four, what does accountability look like? If you're actually going to do something like this, what does accountability look like? You know, broadly speaking, it, it looks a lot like Ephesians 4.15, right? You're, just, you're speaking the truth in love to one another. And broadly speaking, it looks a lot like Hebrews 3.13. You're encouraging one another to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But I want to direct your attention to two other passages that I think further define the practice of accountability. So you can flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, make your way there, verses 23 through 25. Right of Hebrews just finished a, a lengthy section here in this letter explaining the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of the new covenant over the old. And now he's getting into some application. Starting in verse 19, he begins really the, the heart of application to all he said. We're going to jump down to verse 23, which carries on this application. We're called to hold fast the faith. But he says in verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And a second, let us, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if you're going to run the race, if you're going to hold fast the confession without wavering, if you're not going to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, let's say first and foremost what this passage says, you must not be forsaking are assembling together. You can picture a soldier deserting his post because he's scared. Not only is that a shame to him, but it's hurtful to the other soldiers who are relying on him. We can't have members we need deserting. That weakens the whole body. It's the same in the church. When people desert or they're just habitually absent, they just check out. They're not a part of the living body. I'm not just talking about Sunday morning attendance, although that, that's included. There's people who are checked out it weakens the whole body. I mean, an obvious prerequisite for accountability is assembling together, sharing a measure of life together. But for what purpose? This assembling together has a clear purpose here. 
He says it is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And again, to encourage one another. These ideas run parallel. They're talking about provoking people in a positive sense. Sharpening one another. You know Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, provoking them to good. Just last week, I was in Walmart. I saw a customer yelling aggressively at an employee. I don't know how it started, but he was yelling loud, swearing, every insult you could think of. He was trying to get this guy to fight. He was seriously provoking him to fight. Now, thankfully, it diffused. But we all know what it looks like to provoke someone to anger. You know what it looks like to provoke someone to belligerence. You know what to say. You know what buttons to push. You know how to do that. Have you ever thought of the opposite, though? Like, What does it look like to provoke someone to love? What does it look like to provoke them to good deeds? What would that look like? It, I think it looks more like a coach or a friend in someone's corner speaking, encouraging truth to them, sometimes hard truth to them, just to motivate them to do the right thing to choose the right thing. Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen that? Like someone provoking you to love, to make right choices. That's what we're talking about. And that's what we need. There, there's a greater love we all need to aspire to. There's good deeds the Lord wants us to engage in. But we know we can be lazy or selfish. But God wants us to assemble often and just to provoke one another, stir one another up to, to do what is right, to be pleasing to the Lord. This is a good thing. I need this. You need this. He says we are to do this more and more as we see the day drawing near. As it gets darker outside, we need more and more help to stay in the light, to not stumble in the darkness. We need this mutual encouragement. Uh, another pivotal passage. Now, since you're in Hebrews, just turn the page to the right. To James. Now go to James chapter 5. Look at one more here. James 5. I'm just going to pinpoint verse 16 and say a few words about it. Near the end. James 5, 16. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. We don't have time to flesh out the whole text, this whole context. He's talking about a believer who is sick and suffering. Now, I've preached through James, so if you want the whole scoop on this interesting passage, I'd recommend a James 5 13 through 18 message you can download. But he's talking about a sick believer. What you need to know is James is not talking about physical illness in this section but soul sickness. He's talking about people who are spiritually weak and weary. They're downtrodden. They're depressed. The healing they need is in their soul. They need to be encouraged. Now, the source of this person's spiritual depression could be their suffering. They're living in a fallen world. They're suffering the effects of the fallen world. Or he says it could be their sin. Their sin may have brought on their spiritual melancholy or depression. But he says in the verse before, though, if this sick believer has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Jesus already paid it all. The elders of the church then are called on to minister Christ to this spiritually weak believer with prayer that he may be restored. 
Then in verse 16, James now sets his sights on everyone, not just the sick believer, but all of us. Everyone in the church is called on to partake in this spiritual work, mutual confession and prayer. It's to all of us. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, this mutual confession of sin is not salvific. We don't have the power to save anyone or or to forgive anyone. And forgiveness belongs to the Lord alone. But the point is, as we minister the gospel to one another, we help one another turn from sin, be restored in fellowship to God. This mutual confession does not look like finding someone to be your priest who just absolves you, makes you feel better when you sin. No, it looks like just finding a fellow sinner, sharing your sin struggle, and then together going to Christ in prayer for his forgiveness, his restoration, his renewal and strength. It's something the Lord wants us to do together. Again, there will be times you are spiritually weak. Maybe you've been engaging in a, a losing wrestling match with a particular sin. It's beaten you down. You've stumbled. It's brought thoughts of doubt. Your heart feels like it's growing cold. But what if you had a righteous man or woman in the faith who could come alongside of you, to whom you could confess your sin? They could then speak truth to you, admonish you, encourage you, pray for you, and help you. Do you not think that would help you change and be restored and get back up? So altogether, what does biblical accountability look like? It looks like assembling together with trusted believers regularly. Looks like encouraging one another to love and good deeds. It looks like a mutual confession of sin followed by prayer. This is just a type of sin burden bearing that we need in our daily lives. Now we have a couple more Quick questions we'll answer to finish out this Bible study. Number five, how does accountability fail? How does accountability fail? Understand not everyone has had great experiences with what might be called Christian accountability. Some are apprehensive because in previous church experiences, they tried, they were burnt, they were mishandled, and they're a bit scarred. I understand that. By misguided Christians, accountability can turn sour. How does that happen? Now, for one, a lack of just love and grace. I mean, an overly harsh, critical, or adversarial environment is definitely going to thwart accountability. If people don't view one another in love as family members, they don't have the spiritual interests of one another in mind. If they're like proud, self-righteous sin police, then yeah, accountability is going to fail. You have someone who's, they're hurt, they're broken in sin. They finally open up and share their struggle for help, but everyone else just kind of pounces on them and shames them and rejects them. Like, yeah, one, that person is not helped. And two, they're, they're probably never going to open up again or for a long time. It's a harsh, critical spirit will suck the oxygen out of any accountability group. Can't have it. But at the other end of the spectrum, a lack of admonishment or zeal will neuter an accountability group. You can imagine a typical group of guys that come together each week. They confess their sins. Usually they've, they've fallen in purity. They've been impure that week. And they confess to one another. And that confession alleviates their guilty conscience for a week. But there's no reproof. There's no repentance. There's no growth. 
That is not accountability. That's just a weak form of therapy. Any accountability setting that forfeits an expectation of change, repentance, growth, is just going to devolve into just another self-help group. Also not accountability. Now, here's another big threat to accountability. It's an emphasis on law over grace. This is a huge one, so listen up. An emphasis on law over grace. Accountability groups can quickly become rule-centered instead of gospel-centered, where the goal becomes just mere moral improvement. And so these laws, rules are created to hedge one another in. We now have a list of things we must do. And fellow members become more like Pharisees, making sure you stay in balance, using the law to keep you in check. Can't have it. This is also not biblical accountability. We don't wield the law. We wield grace. Don't forget Colossians 2.23, where Paul says that the commandments and teachings of men, including self-abasement and the severe treatment of the body, are of no value against fleshly indulgence. If the law could sanctify us, we wouldn't have needed the gospel. But Christ came with the cross and his good news. It's the only power for salvation and sanctification. We wield the gospel of grace to help one another. Not not the law. It has no power over the flesh. The law only incites the flesh. It has no power to change us. And so accountability, accountability groups fail when they lose sight of Christ and his gospel as the engine for change. When someone is struggling with sin and losing, they don't need stricter laws. They will just find other ways to break those laws. The problem is inside. The inside is changed and renewed. The mind is renewed by the truth, the truth of Christ and his gospel, the truth of grace. We've got to take them back to the well of the gospel, have them drink deeply that the spirit would change their desires. That's how they will bear that fruit of the spirit. In our ultimate standing before God, it's based on Christ's performance, not ours, right? That's the type of truth we need to be reminded of. And likewise, we've already received total forgiveness in Christ. We need that reminder as well. We need to see afresh that Jesus has opened up the way to God for us once for all in his work, his performance, his death, his resurrection. He finished that work. But as we stumble, we repent of our wrongdoing. We, we get back to seeking him and following him. We need to, like Colossians 3.1 says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. In Colossians 3.2, set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. That, this is the type of admonishment we need. Because we're weak, we often need others to speak this to us as well. But any accountability group that does not operate on the sufficiency of the gospel is doomed to failure. Now, number six, let's ask the other question. How does accountability succeed? That's how it fails. Flip side, how does accountability succeed? It succeeds when Christ and his gospel lie at the center of our mutual encouragement, admonishment, and prayer. Every Christian is to be equipped and is to be a minister of the gospel of grace. Again, the gospel is not just good news for our initial salvation. It's also the power for our ongoing sanctification as we're continually transformed into Christ's image. And so this will lead to an accountability that's just saturated in the love of God, mercy, compassion. 
Accordingly, accountability groups succeed when members have a basic knowledge of the word of God. Right? The, the source of our encouragement and admonishment is what? It's, it's God's word. It's the truth, the gospel. We're speaking the truth in love. What truth? Scripture. How else are we going to meaningfully convict and correct one another? We need to be speaking truth. So at least one member needs to be well-versed in the truth. They need to be equipped to speak truth to others. Lead them to the throne of God's grace to find help in a time of need. There are other dispositions necessary for successful accountability. Humility is a chief virtue. You hum- you're humble about your sin. You own up to your own struggles. You're not playing the game, pretending you have no problems or no sin struggles. Honesty is likewise required. Some people, they'll, they'll share a little parcel of information, but keep back the lion's share of what they're really struggling with. They're just playing games. They're trying to save face, look good in front of others. But it's real, there's no point. Now, we all know people do that because they fear ridicule, shame, rejection, judgment. This is why another necessary requirement for accountability to succeed is trust. Accountability is based on a trust relationship. It's where you just come to have complete confidence that this fellow brother or sister loves you. They they care about you. They have your best interests in mind. They just want to help you follow Christ. They're not going to shame you. They're not going to slander or gossip. That trust is required. Of course, requires you care for them in the same way. You've, you've built that trust with them as well. Mutual care, concern, and love in the Lord is obviously required for this type of accountability to flourish. I hope our time this morning has maybe changed some minds. Accountability is both biblical and necessary. Think about your own life. I mean, spiritually speaking, would you say you are where you want to be? Where you think you should be? You've been a Christian now for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Are you still struggling with the same sins? Has nothing changed? Has the needle not moved at all? You're still stumbling in all the same ways. You're wrestling. You're losing. You're stagnant. You're coasting. It's yielding strife in your relationships, a lack of peace, spiritual depression. If this describes you, it is a time for change. If you find yourself just spiritually weak and take a safe wager, you've been running alone. You've been doing it alone. You've been keeping things to yourself. You have known to pick you up when you fall. So just consider today might be time for you to call in some godly reinforcements to help you wage war against sin and hold fast to Christ. It's the Lord's design for this thing we call the church. With that in mind, we can end with the final practical question, number seven. How do you get accountability started? So how do you begin? How do you do this? These accountability relationships we've been describing, they don't, they don't happen overnight. Trust is an earned commodity, so it does take time. It must be built like a spiritual friendship. But you have to start somewhere, right? If you continually do nothing, nothing will change. You, you got to start somewhere. So first, I would say, don't be a spectator at church. You can't be that person who comes late, leaves early, never talks to anyone, just sticks to yourself. You're malfunctioning. You have to change. You cannot be that person. In love, you you need to love the body. Jesus loves his church. You should love his church. And second, thereafter, take steps of care and concern toward others. Just find a few. Find a few people at church 
get out of your comfort zone and, and start building that friendship. You're talking to them after church. You're spending time outside of church. You're just investing in a spiritual friendship. You can't sit around and wait all day for someone to come talk to you as you sit there with your arms folded in the pew. You be that person to go talk to them and just go invest in someone. And then third, be intentional with the time you spend with others. And you purpose to have spiritual conversations with others at church. It's nothing wrong talking about the weather or sports or this or that, but you be intentional to also get a conversation to spiritual things. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? What have you read? Have you been encouraged? Here's what I've been reading and been encouraged by. Ask about their life, their struggles, how you might be able to pray for them, open up about your life too. None of this is natural to our flesh. Our flesh does not want to do any of this. It wants to be alone, run away, and hide. That's why this key word here is intentionality. In the spirit, you must be intentional. Deny the flesh. All those fears and thoughts, think that's coming from the spirit or the flesh? It's coming from the flesh. Deny them. And finally, maybe you do need to consider attending a small group or a community group as just an arena to start doing these things, a place with others who call on the Lord. Maybe you just start your own. Maybe you have a few trusted friends. Nothing wrong with that. A few trusted friends where you gather for prayer, for encouragement, for accountability. That's fantastic as well. Just any kind of small group setting, they're like trellises on which the vine of peer discipleship can grow. And sometimes we just need some help getting started. We need to be trained up like a vine. So consider some small group meeting. No matter what you do, you need to be resolved to heed these special words. 2 Timothy 2.22, one of my favorite verses. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You're never meant to pursue these things alone. You're to flee these lusts, pursue the Lord with others who are calling on our same Lord. This Christian life in the Lord's design, it's, it's all about running from, running to, running with. You must be determined to run from sin. And then you better be running toward Christ and his righteousness. But you're not going to get far unless you're determined to run with others who are calling on the Lord from a pure heart. So let's make that our resolve and our practice. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we praise you this morning for studying your word and for the gift of the church to us. We thank you for all of your grace gifts, primarily Christ, his salvation, his death, his resurrection, which puts away our sin once for all. A day will come, we'll be perfected in the kingdom. These, these things will be no more. The first things will pass away. Sin, suffering, the, the flesh, We'll be no more. But for now it is. We, we have new birth in Christ, but the flesh remains, which drags us away from our love. It drags us into sin. And yet we want to thank you for a gift we, we, I think, take for granted and seldom thank you for, and that is the church. Churches aren't perfect because they're filled with imperfect people, still sinners, yet you've given us the church, this body, for our good, for our growth, for our edification, for our help, for our spiritual survival, you've given us a huge blessing. We need to be thankful for it, not take it for granted. Uh, avail ourselves of it. At the same time, contribute to it as well. 
I pray you convict all of us this morning not to be spectators. Church is not an event. It's a living body meant to be filled with living, active, engaged members who just love you, love one another. And so move in us. Move in your people this morning to be a church, an actual functioning body that causes the building up of itself in love. We need love. We need the truth. We need them hand in hand. By that, we will be made like Christ. Be strong and steadfast. And find that day in the kingdom when these first things have passed away. Until then, move in your people. Convict us. Use us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.